All right. We are in a series directly related to the three books that we're reading as a congregation. The Benedict Option, uh, Strangers in a Strange Land and Out of the Ashes. I started this series explaining the coming storm and the need to prepare both Jews and Christians in a post-Christian America. The culture has certainly shifted. I gave several issues that have happened in the last hundred years. But the church has largely assimilated and changed to be less effective for kingdom purposes. So last week I talked about the type of spiritual formation related to our children, transformation for converts, and reformation for those who are not discipled uh, appropriately. We live in a culture that basically only cares about if you're saved or not, and so development doesn't really happen. Uh, So we need to do reformation, transformation, and formation. Um, So I talked about the two major threats uh, coming from the parable of the sower. One is assimilation. It is amazing. I... Um, there are differences if you walk on the uh, UCR campus or the CBU campus. But those differences in terms of the uh, undergraduates coming in is less pronounced than it ever was. And uh, the assimilation is clearly going on. Uh, That assimilation is into the focus on career and financial security over the kingdom of God. I think a lot of people in Texas and Florida believe that they had full financial security. And that's not the case. And there were people in Mexico who thought they had full financial security, and that's not the case. Financial security is a myth. Now, you want to try to be as secure as you can, but the, but the idea that you can reach a point where you don't have to worry is just not biblically sound. So that chasing after that is directly what Jesus said not to do when he said, seek first the kingdom of God. The second one is hostility and persecution of our faith and practice in the public areas of our culture. Behind all these things is the plan of God and the deception of Satan. We've been given clear warning and guidelines about how to live and act in such a context. But for the most part, the churches, like the foolish virgins of Jesus' parable, have thought that there's time to prepare uh, later. So today I want to uh, remind us of the frontline institutions that God has given us for the purpose of resisting and surviving these things. Now the problem with this is I'm really preaching to the choir. Uh, but since this is going out on a audio and I'm doing the uh, chapters on video and other people are getting them, things that are so common to you are not necessarily to them, and I want to make sure that's there. Though I want to underscore it uh, for us. So I'll try to make it as painless as possible, but you've heard this before. The holy God of Israel has chosen a holy people and a holy land to be the center of his plan of saving his creation. And in the fullness of time, he sent his son, the Messiah, to suffer and rise again, bringing salvation through his name. He is working towards that salvation of all who respond to the good news and and he will bring all the promises to and through Israel through his Messiah. But in the meantime, the world will continue in darkness and ignorance of the truth 
And those who do not know the Lord will persecute those who are of the truth and of the light. And as we come to the end of time, this is going to become worse. And it will appear that the darkness is going to win. But God will stop it and bring all that he's promised to pass. Now that's the, the short version of the eternal purpose of God in his creation. Now, human beings live in relationships. Those relationships cooperate to allow us to live and survive. You will, you will see in all peoples when a natural crisis overwhelms the whole group, as we've been seeing this week. People who are actually not good people will do good things. There is something about the crisis that causes people to pull together. And uh, that is, in some sense, can blind us to the fact that that's not the normal human condition. The normal human condition is what I saw yesterday when a guy went to Home Depot, bought a bunch of uh, wood to cover up his windows, went around to get his nails and stuff. When he came back, the wood was gone. Somebody grabbed it for themselves. That underlies human nature, uh, even though we see the gathering together in this sense. Now, these certain relationships that human beings have are what anthropologists and sociologists call cultural universals. And these include, I'm going to talk about them because I want to talk about the biblical ones, but I want to get the broader perspective first. Kinship systems. We all belong to relatives. We relate to blood relatives. We relate to legal relatives. We relate to fictive relatives. Those are people who act as if they are a mother or father or brother or sister or an aunt or uncle to you. And in some ways may actually be that more uh, than, uh, than your actual blood and uh, phenol relatives. Another uh, structure that we find in almost all cultures is the development of an educational system. All societies have to pass on their culture and their religion and their way of life. And in simple societies, this is done in families, and there may be a supplemental group for certain people. In complex societies like our own, this involves a formal school system with a formal curriculum. And in these situations, the system uses official teachers who are credentialed and trained. Economic and subsistence systems. All groups have to eat and drink and clothe themselves and shelter themselves. And that involves some level of cooperation and specialization as populations become larger. Now, when you get more and more people, you have to have some kind of control. So another primary or social institution is the system of social and political control. People can disagree in conflict with each other. You may have noticed that. And this requires then shared rules and enforcement. With increased population and property, uh, the group needs social order and protection from outsiders. So governmental systems meet this need. And at times, the government itself can become the oppressor. And then every group has religious systems. Belief that God or gods exists is a human universal. And religious systems provide a group of people with a worldview, with a way of life, and with meaning or purpose. 
And in many cases, the religion can become a competing form of social and political control to the government. And that creates a conflict between church and state. Now, I said all of that because all people groups, including our culture, have to have these systems in order for the system to go. And at some point, there becomes a battle for primacy of authority and rule in the context of providing order for people. From a Judeo-Christian perspective, there's a basic conflict between God and man. And this conflict is about who's going to be in charge. If God is God, as the prophet said, then serve him. If man is supreme, as many Americans seem to think, then serve him. That will be a king or it will be a dictator. Or it will be them, royals or elites or elected officials. Or it will be self where everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. So there is always a battle for who's going to be in charge of somebody's life. Am I in charge of my own life? Am I the captain of my fate? Have I elected officials and they'll do it, we'll do what they say? Is there a king or a dictator? Uh, or is there a God that we serve that overrides all of that? There are several forms of relationships between this struggle of human government and God's authority that are easy to identify, but not always easy to understand where the boundaries between them are. So I want to give you those before I talk about some scripture, again, to give you a foundation. One of those is called a theocracy. A theocracy is simply a system where the religious authorities, the clergy, if you will, have power over the civil authorities. That was the ideal in Israel of old, where when the king didn't do what he was supposed to do, Saul, Samuel the prophet would come and chastise him. Or when David sinned a great sin, Nathan the prophet would come and tell him the judgment of God. The idea was that God was in charge and that the the prophets would speak for God to remind the people that the king was subject to God. And that's why the scripture required that a king of Israel had to write one of these Torahs in his own handwriting in front of the priests. And he had to read from it every day to remind him that he's, it's not good to be king, it's a responsibility to be king. That's a theocracy. Now there are people who want a theocracy today. Israel is not a theocracy today, it's a democracy. There are Christians in America that think America should be a theocracy under God. I don't, because it wouldn't be under God, it would be under people who think they're talking for God, and that's scary. Uh, and there are people in the radical side of Islam that also want a theocracy, and that's what they're trying to do. Those tend, as a rule, to cause problems. Uh, they are terrible for those who are part of a religious minority. Now, the second form is a state-sponsored church, a system where the state is the ultimate authority. It places its authority behind a specific religion and then cooperates with and enforces the tolerance or persecution that's done by the state. And this has been done historically. There are, the official church in England is the Anglican Church. 
the official church in Sweden is the Lutheran church, right? And so you've got to get married by them or, or it's, it's not a, a legal marriage, right? Those things are part of a system where the state runs the church and pretty soon that state tails wagging the church dog. What our founders tried to do was create a free church in a free state. This is the American ideal. A free church in a free state with a free press and a free economy which provides a decentralization of control so that none of these institutions can take full power from the people. Now the problem is as the government gets closer to the media or the media gets closer to the government or or the uh, church cooperates too much with the uh, with the government or the government takes over power of the church, we begin to lose this decentralization. And there are a lot of people who think that we are beginning to move from that ideal. Which moves us to the next level, which is a level that many people see coming in our own context. And that is state toleration of private religion. In that kind of a system, the public expression of religion in symbol, behavior, and speech is forbidden. They're tolerated as private expressions, but they're not allowed as public expressions. Now, we used to have prayer in school. It's no longer in school. That may be a good idea or a bad idea, but there's a change. Uh, we used to have the Ten Commandments in the courts. They're moving those out. We used to have religious symbols on government seals and other things. Those are being removed. We are beginning to see a push towards the government tolerating religion, but wanting religion to be in the private, uh, behind-the-scenes notion. Now, the step that goes after that is state persecution of religion. And this involves placing religion under legal sanctions or fines or taxes, imprisonment or death. And history is replete with examples of this. And in cases where there's a state religion, the state religion helps with that persecution. The Bible suggests that religious persecution will be as much a matter of religious authorities as civil authorities. Jesus said, you will be persecuted in the synagogues, in the gatherings. You will be persecuted by the kings. In other words... It's not just religious intolerance of us. It'll be religious intolerance and civil intolerance uh, of, of our beliefs. This should give us pause when wanting a close state and church connection. And this is the historical fear of Baptists because Baptists suffered at the hands of Calvinists, Protestants, and the, the state. And part of the reason a lot of them came to America and set up this kind of push for religious independence of the state and the church was because they didn't trust the denominational churches and they didn't trust the, the state governments. So, with that in mind, and I told you I'd try to get, as, get through it as quick as I could, I want to talk about Jesus' words when he said, that we are to render to Caesar what is due him and to God what is due him. This is, if you will, diaspora thinking. 
We're in a culture, we're in a country, but we belong to the kingdom of God. And Paul tells us also to render due benevolence and honor to the authorities, whether they are human or divine. And that's a difficult balance. Hard for us to do that. Um, But the scripture and Jewish and Christian history can give us examples of what to do in that context. So, for the American culture, the older priority, that is the early American culture, saw as the priorities for social institutions, household and family. Your home and family, including extended family, was the first and greatest priority for help and for assistance. And in some sense, fictive family, friends and co-workers might be included in that context. The second level was congregation and neighborhood. People lived in neighborhoods, and churches tended to be located in neighborhoods. Most of the people would just go to the church when they heard the bells ringing, and people came together and neighbors knew each other, and often watched or even disciplined each other's children. I grew up in a neighborhood that was still doing that. There was a local church. Most of the people in the neighborhood went to that local church. The bells would ring. We didn't go, but they went. I saw them walking. I eventually found my way down there, but it was also true that if I was doing something I shouldn't do, I might get put on restriction or even spanked by one of the neighbors, okay? And I didn't dare tell my parents or I'd be in more trouble because, uh, you know, that was just the way it was. So there was more of a sense of congregation and neighborhood as the secondary thing. Things got solved at home or with family, or it got solved with congregation and neighborhood. The third level for the traditional American culture was local, state, and federal government. If conflict or needs couldn't be reached by these primary institutions, then the police and the courts and other governmental systems could assist. Now, there was one institution that was quasi-neighborhood family, and government. And that was the school system. But the school system had local school boards and schools were terribly tied. I don't mean terribly in the bad sense. They were significantly tied to the parent-teacher association. So in that sense, the educational institutions were much more in the early days tied to the neighborhoods and the congregations. Now, what about the Bible? Well, before I do that, let me talk about present. At present, uh, household and family are being devalued and redefined in ways that prevent them from functioning as we were once expected to do. There's a general belief out there in the culture that families are by definition dysfunctional and that parents don't know how to raise kids. It's true in many cases. But the idea is the family and the household is not the primary place to be concerned about. And by redefining family so that almost anything constitutes as a family, there's no shared structure of what that's supposed to be. Secondly, Congregations are no longer local. People don't know their neighbors and don't live often next to 
people. One of the things the Benedict Option talks about, we're going to talk about this more next week, is that you need to know where the fellow members of the Disciple Center and serious religious believers are in your neighborhood. You need to cultivate those relationships and those connections. Uh, that's really important. Uh, congregations are no longer local. People drive a long way, hardly know the people that go to their churches. And most people don't know their neighbors or even want to know their neighbors. Coworkers and congregations are different relational networks for most people because unless you actually work in a religious, quasi-religious framework, like those of us who work at Cal Baptist, we're both co-workers and belong to the congregation. But if you work in most businesses, your co-workers, even if they go to church, don't go to the church that you go to. So the government has become primary and is increasing its control over schools, over hospitals, over courts, over media, and over all other services. And natural disasters help with the dependence on that and the need to do it from a governmental framework. This is problematic for traditional Americans and for religious groups who hold to the former priorities of the household and the neighborhood and the congregation over the government. So the battle now between progressives and conservatives is not about family and congregation. It's about who's going to control the government. This is why so many people are disappointed with the Republican Party. Okay? Because they're not about smaller government. They're not about more independence and, and that. They're about being in charge of the government. And as we see, they're not able to do much when they have it. But the government grows under Republicans and the government grows under Democrats and it grows under a combination because the nature of government is to grow. The American system was to try to find a way to mitigate that. And that system is beginning to fail for a lot of reasons. But part of it is that the idea of citizenship is no longer primary in our thinking. So, having said all that, I want to look at two passages of Scripture. I'll have to go fairly quick with them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. What are the biblical priorities? Be very careful. Right now, Christians are dividing themselves up into progressive, liberal, I'm talking politically, left-side uh, people who look at biblical texts that talk about equality and justice and say, see, that's what Jesus is about. And people on the right side of the political uh, section are looking at, at issues regarding sexuality and other things and say, that's what Jesus is about. And both of them are missing the point that neither of them are talking about what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the kingdom of God. He is not talking about American politics. And, and we are being divided because we're so assimilated into the culture that we can't think biblically. We can only think left and right. And then grab a Bible verse. I see your verse and raise you too, right? You're not a real Christian, I am. So, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your might. These words, the Torah, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You're going to memorize these things. And you're going to teach them diligently to your sons. And you're going to talk of them when you sit in the house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up. You're going to bind them as a sign on your hand. And they're going to be as frontals on your forehead. You're going to write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. My word is going to permeate every aspect. Every aspect of your life. There's not a secular zone. Everything we do has biblical content related to it. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you say, where you go, how you work, how you treat people, all of that. And we've lost that. We've turned it into, well, I'm saved. I said the magic words. And now here's my political view, and I've got Bible verses to match it. That is not what God's talking about. We are to inundate ourselves with the words of God, and particularly the Torah and the Gospels, the words of Jesus. And then the prophets and the epistles are commentary on that. But most people only know the prophets and the epistles. They don't know the Torah, and they don't know the Gospel. So, the home is where this happens. The home is the outpost of the kingdom of God. So we, like Joshua, must proclaim with our mind and our heart and our life and our strength, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to talk about that next week when we look at the Benedict Rule, which is a way for a household to operate in that context. This requires an intentional religious home with markers of the faith. We've talked about that before. People who walk into your house and none of you are there should recognize that this is a religious home. How would that be? There should be religious and devotional activities and holy day activities in the home. And there should be biblical roles and rules, the commandments, being acted upon. Because our family are our neighbor and are one another's. And therefore those commandments should be practiced. The identity formation of our children has to be based on those biblical principles. I couldn't be there yesterday, but when Finn was being uh, named, I saw those pictures and I, I, you, you, I, it brings back us doing it with our grandchildren and the joy that I have that, that so many of us are beginning to have the home manifest this stuff. I, I think that is critical for the generations to come. So the home is a primary place of this faith. And you can't outsource it to the church. The church reinforces it. The church doesn't establish it. If you outsource this to a church, you're going to be in trouble. Second, Acts chapter 2. I'm trying to rush here. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. The scripture says they, it's talking about the believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. That's scripture. The apostles taught from the Torah, from the prophets, and then they added their own statements, many of which turn out to be what we call the New Testament. And uh, and fellowship, interacting with each other, and the breaking of bread. Some people think that's 
the the Eucharist. I think it's not. I think it's eating together. Uh, and prayer. We'll talk. I think the breaking of bread may be related to the Sabbath in the homes. Uh, not to uh, the Eucharist because that, at least at this time, is done every year at Passover. Um, it will become more common later in church history. Then he says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, this awe of God. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, this doesn't mean they were communists. It means that their stuff was available for everyone if there was a need. And they began selling property and possessions. These are the extra stuff they had. And were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And of course, and we get more of that later in the scripture. Then it says, day by day, continually in one mind in the temple, they would come into the little uh, court of Solomon and gather in small groups, uh, probably what we would call a congregation. Um, and, and they were doing that and breaking of bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, because they were doing good, um, not being irritants. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this early form is in connection to the temple, synagogue, slash idea, and the homes, both congregation and household in, in full context. So, we cannot do this faith alone with just our family. We need community. And the early believers in Jerusalem had the temple and houses to congregate in and to live kingdom lives together to reinforce one another and to benefit one another. But in time, they would lose the temple. In the diaspora... The congregations mostly met in homes and in synagogues. This paralleled the Jerusalem experience until they were removed from the synagogues. We read that in the book of Acts. And then they formed their own synagogues. Paul formed one right next door. Uh, and called these assemblies, these are ecclesias, what we call churches, and formed a parallel system to the traditional Jewish one that expanded Banded to Jew and Gentile and included the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. An expansion of the synagogue, not a, not a rival to the synagogue. The congregational facility, as they began to develop, and that wasn't until the third and fourth century, the home churches were really the norm up until in the fourth century as they were no longer being persecuted, they could have more of a public place. So this notion of being in a church that's public and everybody comes to is not is not an early church model. Uh, it's not even a, um, a consistent through church history model. We'll talk about that next week. So these were not public churches. They were small private congregations meeting in homes and, if possible, gathering in larger places where several households could meet together. And those institutions survived persecution, both religious and state, for over a hundred years. The congregational facility, when it was allowed to exist, becomes an embassy of the kingdom of God. 
In other words, it's primarily for citizens of the kingdom. It's not an evangelism center, and it's not a business designed to just gather butts in the church. Its goal is a place, a center for the body to come together and benefit from a little larger community than just the little neighborhood house churches that they belong to. And they would specifically do that when it came to the holy days. So what are we to do? And I'll wrap it up, okay? We're going to maintain this faith over the next three generations and give our children and our converts the kingdom focus and eternal perspective that they're going to need in a culture that's moving from church and state separation to a tolerance of private faith and maybe even a possibility of discrimination or persecution. Then we must reestablish the religious home. As you know, this has been my passion for nearly 40 years, and I often feel like a voice crying in the wilderness, not because no one else is saying this, but because that's all they're doing is saying it. Preaching it, teaching it, saying it, agreeing with it is meaningless. We have to be doers of the word, or we're deceiving ourselves. For the most part, they're not doing it as a sustained intentional action. Now, you guys know as well as I do that this is not easy. You get in a groove and you're starting to do it and you're kind of excited about it and the kids are doing it and then something happens. Okay, uh, And then you miss doing it and then getting back is difficult. For guys, there's always the fear that their wife is going to disapprove of the way they're doing it. So they tend not to do it. They let her lead it and then she kind of resents that. There's all that kind of stuff that goes on. We have to keep trying. We have to keep reasserting that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Secondly, we have to rediscover the private community of faith. This is also a passion of mine. We need to create private communities of faith on the biblical model, not the cultural one. And that's the intent of the Disciple Center, and we've made a good start. But a storm is approaching, and many others are waking up as they're reading these books and realizing that they need a change. And one of those tools is the rule of St. Benedict. And I'm going to talk about that next week specifically. Not the book, the Benedict Option, but what it and what I've been talking about is based on. Because when I formed the Disciple Center, the rule of St. Benedict was one of the models that I used because it fit the biblical model in a different context. And we always have to look at what the biblical model was in its own context and then say, how do we apply that into our context? So that's part of what I want to do, and I want to do that next week. But one of the things that we have to be aware of is the primary institutions historically included education. Education is now being pulled into the governmental system. And so we're going to have to think of education family, and congregation as part of a whole of primary institutions and not think of education as a secondary education because it's now tied not to the kingdom, but it's tied to the government. And that will affect your children, 
that will affect your home, that will affect this congregation. I want us to think about the outpost of the kingdom, which is our home, the embassy of the kingdom, which is the congregation and our gatherings, and that the educational process has to be primarily there. Primarily there. And I want to remind you what I said last week that I got mocked so much over social media. If the, real, if the education of your children is not primarily religious, I don't mean going to a church school. I mean, if it's not religious identity, your children will assimilate. This culture is going to suck them up. So if your children and your grandchildren are going to name the name of Christ, now, clearly God can... I, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. God will still do some things. But he may not do it with your children because he's given you a stewardship about your children to deal with that. He's commanded. You will diligently teach these things to your children. If you assume God will just take care of your children when you're disobeying him, you're kidding yourselves. 